If you would, open your Bibles with me to John's Gospel. John chapter 7. I'm going to finish out chapter 7 this morning, starting in verse 40 and going to verse 52. You can find that on page 893 if you're using the Pew Bible. And we try to have PowerPoint now from... Uh, since a while back we started doing that, um, but sometimes it doesn't come, come together for me. So we won't be having that this morning, so just pay more attention. <laughs> um, but no, we, we do appreciate your, your feedback on, on the PowerPoint, and we do want to continue using that as much as we can to serve you and your understanding of the Word. Um, anyway, so John chapter 7. <clears throat> going to start reading in verse 40. Hear the word of the Lord. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search for yourself and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to the nourishment of our hearts this morning, that we may come to Christ for drink and not speculate about him, refuse to come to him because of our own pride. In Jesus' name, amen. While the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has already prepared us to hear these words in verses 40 to 52. This is actually the second time in chapter 7 where John reflects more extensively on the response of the crowd to Jesus' teaching and then the authorities' mission to arrest Jesus because of his teaching. Earlier in chapter 7, Jesus teaches us in the middle of... Jesus goes up in the middle of the feast and he teaches and John tells us that it divides the people. Some are impressed with his miracles, but others not so much. And they just debate with each other over who they think the Christ 
really is and whether this Jesus is the Christ. All the while, the Pharisees commission their officers to arrest him. We observe the same sorts of reaction in our passage this morning to Jesus' teaching. It's now the end of the feast. Jesus has just finished teaching that he will give the Spirit to anybody that believes in him. That if your soul thirsts and you come to Jesus for drink, then out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. We see that in verses 38 and 39. And now for a second time in chapter 7, we get a snapshot of the people's reaction to Jesus' words and the authorities' mission again to have Jesus arrested. The picture is the same as before. We see a divided crowd over whether Jesus is the Christ and hostile authorities who want this man arrested. The one thing that's different is that now even some of the Jewish authorities begin to waffle in their convictions based on what they observe about Jesus. Read with me starting in verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers, the same guys that were sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees, back in verse 32. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Isn't that amazing? They say nothing of the crowd... They say nothing of the crowd debating with each other. They say nothing of anyone trying to stop them. Nothing of a potential riot that their actions might have caused should they have gone in and arrested Jesus. They only answer with how Jesus' words affected them. No one ever spoke like this man. I think this whole passage hinges on that statement. No one ever spoke like this man. So that what you have is two accounts where people are divided over Jesus. One among the crowds, one among the Jewish authorities, and right in the middle, sandwiched between these two places of of division is the statement, no one ever spoke like this man. I think John's point is this. The problem underlying the division among the people and the problem underlying the hostility of the authorities are the same problem. They think Jesus speaks merely as a man instead of the incarnate word. Now, the officials who make that claim in verse, 30, in verse 46 don't get the full picture, picture of Jesus either, but that's part of John's irony. They end up speaking better than they know. These guys go to arrest Jesus. They hear him teach. They return, to, they return without him. And why don't they have him? No one ever spoke like this man. The point being precisely because he's not a mere man. 
Anybody reading John's Gospel already knows that Jesus is the incarnate Word of God. He was in the beginning with God. He was Himself God and through whom the entire universe came into being, John tells us in chapter 1. And this divine Word who eternally existed in glory with His Father, left glory, became one of us in order to reveal to us the God we had forsaken. According to John, if you want to know God, look at Jesus because that's who He is. Have you ever just stopped and considered some of the claims that Jesus Himself makes? I mean, the officials are very right to say no one ever spoke like this man because he's so much more than just a man, obviously. Let me just give you a sampling of Jesus' claims from where we've been. Just This is just in the first seven chapters of John. Jesus claims to know us exhaustively. He knows where we are and what we're doing at all times, just as he did with Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 48. Before Philip calls you, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel. Jesus knows the state of our hearts. He tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't come into the kingdom of God like you are. He knows Nicodemus's heart. Jesus knows the history of our sins like he did with the Samaritan woman at the well. You're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five and the one you now have is not your husband. Jesus knows when we have a grumbling spirit or when there are murderous intentions in our hearts even as he called out the disciples in chapter 6 and then the Pharisees in chapter 7. Jesus claims with his words that he knows us exhaustively. Jesus also claims to reveal God directly. Whenever he's, he opens his mouth, divine revelation is just coming out. He told the Jews at the feast, my teaching is not mine, it is his who sent me. And this is very much like what he'll tell the same crowd in chapter 8. I speak just as the Father taught me. Or I tell you the truth that I heard from God. John interprets that to mean in, in, in chapter 3, whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God. Everything coming out of Jesus' mouth is revelation. To receive Jesus' testimony is to receive God's testimony. Jesus also claims that, he's, that He is God and that He's worthy of our worship and honor. Whenever He's debating with the Jews about the Sabbath in chapter 5, He says, My Father is working until now and I am working. And the authorities get steamed because He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. And it's not too much further before Jesus tells them that, a part, that part of God's plan is that all should honor the, fa- the, the, the Son even as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. 
talk about a claim, that is blasphemy unless you are God. C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. For a man to say he's equal with God and worthy of worship either means he's a lunatic, the devil himself, or he's truly God. Jesus also claims he's the final judge and the life giver. He tells the Jews he has authority to execute judgment and will raise all who are in the tombs with a word from his mouth. Some will rise to a resurrection of life and others to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus claims to be the bread from heaven that gives life to the world. Jesus also claims that his words alone truly satisfy the thirsty soul, chapter 4. That his words bring true healing to the whole person, chapter 5. That his words gladden the heart when they are embraced, chapter 6. And that his words impart life where there is death inside, again in chapter 6. And we haven't even touched passages like... I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Or before Abraham existed, I am. Or even dipping into Matthew's gospel that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. The officials in verse 46 are right to observe that nobody ever spoke like this man. Jesus speaks as no ordinary man. He speaks as the incarnate Word of God, as the eternal Son who became flesh, as God's own self-revelation. John is telling us that when you don't treasure Jesus in this way, when you don't treasure Jesus as the incarnate Word of God, when your heart doesn't worship Him as God's only Son... Two very dangerous things happen. And we see them unfold with the Jews in our passage. First of all, you let your earthly speculation keep you from coming to Jesus for eternal life. You let your earthly speculations about Jesus keep you from coming to him for eternal life. You know, when we come to verse 40... Nobody's casting themselves at the feet of Jesus, asking him for true spiritual drink, even though he's just invited them to come and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 40, everybody's debating. They're not coming to Jesus for drink. He just promised that should any one of them come to him trusting that he is who he says he is, then he would give them what their own Bibles have for centuries told them they've needed. A new heart, not full of rebellion and death and covenant unfaithfulness, but of eternal life, of living water gushing from their innermost being like it will be gushing from the temple in the new heavens and the new earth. But nobody's coming for drink in verse 40. They're just debating whether he fits into their mold. Read, them, read, read verse 40 and following with me. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now it may very well be the case that John is using a bit more irony here. That is to say, people are arguing over whether he's the prophet or whether he's the Christ. And John's kind of snickering in the background going, yeah, he's both. But I think John is focusing on something else underlying all three of their comments. The reason they're debating over Jesus instead of coming to Jesus is that their concerns merely revolve around Jesus' earthly origins, despite the fact that he's been telling them of his heavenly origin. They're racking their brains trying to fit Jesus into their traditional little molds of what the Messiah should be and what he should look like and where he should come from. And Jesus is blowing up their molds. They're centering everything on genealogy and and geography like they see it. And Jesus is telling them their categories are insufficient if they want to truly know who he is. Yes, yes, he, he is the offspring of David. That is definitely true. But they miss him altogether if they do not see that God is his father. Even Matthew's gospel... Step out of John for a minute. Even Matthew's gospel, if you think about it, begins Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Part of Matthew's gospel, part of the the, the, the central theme in Matthew's gospel is to reveal Jesus as the son of David. But it takes Matthew all but 21 verses before he's telling us that this is Emmanuel, God himself with us. So even in a gospel that's really emphasizing, King David is here, the new one, the real one. Even in that gospel, Matthew is saying he's God. And if you don't get that, you don't get Jesus. So John's concerns are the same, but even more so. In fact, even when there's multiple opportunities in John's gospel where Jesus has just an excellent opportunity to connect people to all the right places in the Old Testament that speak about him being the human Messiah. In fact, even when Jesus, uh, he has a great opportunity to inform them of his earthly origins when when. When that question was raised in verse 27 of chapter 7, look there with me. You know, they all say in verse 26, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, but we know where this man comes from? In other words, Galilee. No one, but when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. All Jesus had to do right there is take them to Isaiah 9. Just like Matthew does in his gospel in chapter 4. All he had to do, there you go, Isaiah 9, 1 1 through 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Come on, guys, I mean, get it together, look. But that's not what he does here. It's true that he fulfills that text, but he doesn't take them there. He centers them on his heavenly origins. I have not come of my own accord. 
He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. He does the same thing in chapter 6. They say, in verse 42 of chapter 6, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We've got his origins. We know where he's from. And what is Jesus' answer here? It's not, hey, let me take you to Joseph's lineage real quick and show you how this all lines out. He simply repeats himself and says that he's the living bread that came down from heaven. That's what John wants us to see about Jesus. Again and again, John's emphasis in his gospel stays on Jesus' heavenly origin. And his point is that when you miss his heavenly origin, when you miss that he's been sent from the Father, you'll resort only to pious-sounding speculation about him without ever coming to him for a drink, without ever coming to him for eternal life. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's dangerous because your soul will never draw from the wells of salvation if you trust in your own earthly speculations about Jesus. Unless you trust that Jesus himself is God and was sent from God to save you, you will never enjoy life in the kingdom with God. You will never taste the sweetness of what it's like to have all of your sins forgiven. You will never know what it means to live in peaceful fellowship with your maker. You will never experience his word gladden your heart as the spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Instead, you will find yourself empty, always thirsting but never satisfied, always seeking life in the world but only finding death. And God will finally condemn you on the last day for siding with the world that refuses to know their God. So that's one danger we see here when you don't treasure Jesus as the incarnate Word of God sent from the Father. Your heart will fill up with empty speculation instead of running to Him for true spiritual drink. But these words are written that you might believe, John tells us. This little snapshot of division among the crowd is to keep you from being divided in your heart over Jesus. It's meant to draw your ear into the gospel so that you yourself say, no one ever spoke like this man. Not everybody in this gospel remains in unbelief, remains in their earthly speculation about Jesus. Some of them come to him and drink the waters of eternal life. Even as John opened his gospel for us, he says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. We're seeing lots of that. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So some speculate and debate. Others believe. Where are you? Where are you this morning? The danger is that you would believe your own earthly speculations over the very utterances of God coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. 
Open your ear to hear Jesus and see nobody ever spoke like this man because he is God and he has come for you. A second danger when you do not worship Jesus as the incarnate word is this. Your self-righteous pride will blind you to Jesus as your curse bearer. Your self-righteous pride will blind you to Jesus as your curse bearer. When I say self-righteous pride, I have in mind that state in which someone flatters himself to think he measures up to God's law, and he does so to such a degree that he even grows smugly intolerant of everybody else. It's the kind of pride that's often characteristic of the Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated other people with contempt, as Luke 18, 9 tells us. That same self-righteous pride is present in our passage, and we see it very plainly in the Pharisees. Verse 45, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one's ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see what they're doing? They're elevating themselves as the ultimate measure of what the law does and does not say. And anybody who remotely crosses their interpretation of the law, like this crowd who's even toying with the idea that Jesus might be the Christ, or even Jesus who says all kinds of things about their temple and their feasts and their Sabbath and, their, uh, and his bread from heaven. If anybody remotely crosses their interpretation of the law, they are accursed. This is self-righteous pride to the core. There's no rivers of living water coming out from these hearts. It is just a desert land of religious pride and arrogance. And the extent of their pride becomes even sharper when they indict the crowd as being accursed. That is way more than a bully on the playground calling you a bad name. To be accursed in Israel was to be cut off from all the privileges of God's covenant people. More than that, it even meant that God himself was your enemy. Let me give you a taste from Deuteronomy 28. It gives us the picture of what it means to be accursed. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments, then all these curses shall overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall, be, shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. 
The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken the Lord. Translation, in the Pharisee's mind, this crowd is damned. They don't know the law, therefore they don't keep the law, and therefore they are damned. They are accursed. But not the Pharisees, right? They are the pure stock in Israel. They know the law frontwards and backwards. They wouldn't miss their Messiah. They searched the scriptures. They will know when he comes, but this guy from Galilee, whatever. And then enters a Nicodemus, and the irony is about to get really thick. Get what he says in verse 51. Does our law, yes, the same law we're all bragging about knowing and keeping so well, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's right. In several places in Deuteronomy, the people were to judge a man righteously without partiality. They were to hear the small and the great alike. It would seem that Nicodemus even modeled that practice himself when he went to Jesus before by night. I want to give this guy a fair hearing. And now he's just throwing the question out on the table for their consideration. You know one of those situations when you're on a team of folks and you're all trying to dupe your opponents so that you can win? And then one of your teammates, you know, pipes up with a comment that just totally ruins the whole deal? Everybody's just like, oh, man, what are you doing? Okay, this situation's a lot worse than that. It's worse... Because without missing a beat, the Pharisees accused Nicodemus of prejudice and favoritism. All he did was speak the truth from their own law. And they respond with, are you from Galilee too? Search. Go home and read your Bible, Nicodemus. See that no prophet arises from Galilee. They totally blow him off. Now's... Now's when the irony gets thick. You tell me, is it just the crowd that's accursed? It's not just the crowd. The Pharisees are accursed, and they're totally oblivious to it. They think they know and keep the law so well, and Nicodemus's comment just exposed the truth of the situation. They're not about the justice of God's law. They're not about to give Jesus a fair hearing. They practice injustice when it comes to evaluating this man from Galilee. More than that, we've already seen twice that their hearts are filled with murder toward him, a violation of the sixth commandment. 
The covenant curses I read off a bit earlier from Deuteronomy 28 belong to the Pharisees as well, if not more so. And really, if we use John's assessment of the situation, the one who's truly accursed is ultimately the one who reads the law as an end in itself instead of reading it in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he says in chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's the person who does not receive Jesus' words for eternal life that's accursed and cut off from the blessings of God's promises. In chapter 5, Jesus already told them this straight up. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus' point, Moses accuses them before God. The law itself curses them. It's the person who rejects Jesus, the incarnate word sent from the Father who sits under the curse of God's wrath. Just as John tells us in chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's John's assessment of the situation. Everybody in the world who does not trust and follow Jesus as the Christ is accursed. But the Pharisees don't see this about themselves. They're blinded by their self-righteous pride. They each need a new heart, which humbly admits its guilt under the law. And then they need new eyes that see Jesus as the one who came from heaven to bear the curse they deserved. And we need the same. We, need, we needed a curse bearer, one who takes away our curse for breaking God's law, one who can forgive all our sins, take away all our guilt, remove all our deserved wrath, and give us a right standing with God forever. Paul tells us in Galatians 3... That Jesus is that curse bearer. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ became a curse for us. That we would not have to be cursed. And get this too. Since Jesus mentioned the Spirit, back up in uh, verses 38, 37 to 39 there, he's talking about the Spirit. Since he mentions the Spirit, Galatians 3 also tells us that Jesus did all of that curse-bearing so that in him the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So by sending Jesus into the world as the incarnate word, God takes care of both of our problems in this passage. The curse... And the empty speculation. 
He removes the curse from us through his death on the cross so that we bear it no more. And he gives us the spirits so that we're not speculating about Jesus anymore. We're running to him. We can't get enough of this guy. We come drinking from the fountain of his delight. Jesus' words taste good to us all of a sudden. His teaching gives us life. His cross reminds us that our curse is gone and that God is not our enemy, but is for us in every way. His ways set the agenda for our days. His warnings keep us humbled before the Lord. And his promises are pulling us to the finish line of glory. We want as much of his living water as we can get. Every morning it's fill my cup again, Jesus. Fill my cup again. Ask yourself, is that how you respond to Jesus? Because this is who he is for us. He is our curse bearer and he is our life giver. He is our God who came down. No one ever spoke like this man, but that's because he was more than a man for your sake. John hasn't included us in all the debate and speculation about Jesus in Jerusalem just to leave us with the fact that it happened. He includes us because he has an agenda, which he reveals very clearly at the end of his gospel. These things have been written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's John's agenda. That's the Holy Spirit's agenda when reading a passage like this. Life in Jesus' name. Life. So how are you responding to Jesus? Do you see him as your curse bearer or is your self-righteous pride blinding you to your need for a curse bearer? Do you come to him for spiritual refreshment and the renewal of your innermost being or do you speculate whether the world offers you something more satisfying than this incarnate word? Don't let your earthly speculations or your self-righteous pride lead you away from the incarnate word. It's eternally too dangerous. Turn away from your sins, come to Jesus, and gain true life with God. And I mean that for everybody in this room, not just the unbeliever. Your self-righteousness might have just evidenced itself if you ignored my exhortation as if it wasn't for you. But for someone else who really needs to turn away from their sins. Has the thrill of your heart been the glory of God this week? How did last week's sermon on God's purpose and the suffering of his people lead you to lay down your life for someone else's eternal good this week? How did Jesus' call to come and die last Sunday transform your living on Monday or empower your prayers on Tuesday? What caused more grief last Sunday? Identification with the sufferings of our persecuted brothers and sisters or the length of the members' meeting? What was easier to pick up this week? Your Bible or the remote? Your prayer journal or your iPhone? What's been easier to criticize for you? The precious blood-bought church of God who may have some differences with your beliefs 
or your own lack of service in building her up. Truth be told, our faith that Jesus is the Christ is not always resolved as it ought to be. Speculation about Christ still raises its head. It just looks a little different and more sophisticated. At least and especially when we toy with other saviors that we think might bring us more comfort than Christ or more power than Christ or more life in this world than Christ or more joy than Christ. And our self-righteous pride is relentless as we carry high opinions about ourselves and compare ourselves with others instead of Christ or we indict others for not measuring up to the expectations we've created. Does it not stand the cross of Christ upside down to say Christ took away our curse so that we can pompously curse everybody else? And yet some of us feed on the cursing instead of drinking from Christ the curse bearer. Does not the cross teach us a different way? That since Christ showed mercy, patience, and selfless love in bearing our curse, we can show the same toward others. In some measure, we all need to turn away for our sin and come to Jesus for life. We all need to test ourselves to see how we're responding to Christ, to see whether we truly believe in Him and find in Him everything we need for eternal life. If He really is who He says He is, God in the flesh who came to deliver us from the awful curse and fill us with an amazing spirit, then how could we respond with anything less than giving ourselves entirely over to his worship and his service and his praise and his mission and his love with every breath he gives us? And why, if he stands ready this morning to nourish us with eternal life, would we not run to him moment by moment for drink as we seek to serve him? Wherever you're at this morning, Christ stands ready to have you again. His words to the Jews are also words for us. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's true. No one ever spoke like this man. But he came and spoke this way. For your eternal joy in God. So come and drink from him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to, by your spirit, work in our hearts so that we see Jesus as the one who truly has the words of life and that we would heed every one of them, that we would come and drink from him every day as we encounter various circumstances and temptations and trials and battles with with our flesh, let us keep running to him for true spiritual drink and not resort to empty earthly speculations or resort to self-righteous pride. Humble us before you that your name may be exalted. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.